Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that panders to the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories from around the world, including a surprise result from the reliability surveys coming out of the United States. We road test the Land Rover Discovery Sport, and we reflect on the last of the Australian-built Ford Falcons. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith and Brian Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including Chevrolet turns to emoji to promote their new cruise. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, let's get the program going. First, the news. For the first time in nearly three decades, Japanese vehicles fell below industry average on quality, according to a US consumer survey by JD Power and Associates. This is less a measure of faltering by the Japanese and more a reflection of how much faster other brands are improving. The Japanese brands improved marginally but failed to keep up with the rest of the industry. Korean brands led the industry in initial quality by the widest margin ever averaging 90 problems per 100 vehicles. Kia in particular did very well, coming second overall in the survey for reliability behind Porsche, which meant it was the best-performing non-luxury brand. Fiat improved enormously from the last survey, but still came last. Car companies are pushing harder into the car share business. Both Ford and Mini are offering customers a reduction in their car payments, if they are prepared to rent their cars out to people for short periods of time. Ford is calling their program peer-to-peer car sharing, and it will be tested in a handful of US cities. BMW will integrate Mini into the Drive Now network, which operates short-term car rental in select North American and European cities. Up until now, car sharing schemes have seen an independent company like GoGet own the vehicles. The privatisation of car rentals might sell more cars for a manufacturer, but it will also give them a foot in the door of operating a car-sharing business. The number of companies building autonomous cars and testing them on the road in America is increasing. No clearer indication of this is that recently two autonomous cars from two different companies nearly had a crash. The Delphi Automotive Audi Q5 that had become the first automated car to drive coast-to-coast across America, nearly collided with one of Google's self-driving prototypes. The incident took place in Palo Alto, California. Delphi's Audi was apparently starting to change lanes when it was cut off by a self-driving Lexus operated by Google. Perhaps this is a good thing, as it tests what happens when two autonomous cars come into close proximity. A study in London has found that long-term exposure to daytime road traffic noise was associated with only a small increased risk of cardiovascular disease in the general population. Strongest associations were observed between daytime road traffic noise and hospital admissions for strokes, particularly in those over 75 years of age. Stronger associations for stroke compared with other cardiovascular diseases is biologically plausible in light of the consistent evidence linking noise exposure to hypertension. The current lane departure warning devices on cars rely heavily on being able to detect line markings on the road. 
For this and other reasons, the first applications of autonomous vehicles will be on high standard motorways with clear lane markings. But many accidents, particularly fatal accidents, occur on rural roads where lane and edge markings may not be as clear. International automotive supplier Continental is working on new road departure protection systems that are intended to solve these problems. Rather than just detect line markings, it will identify roadway boundaries. It aims to monitor the driver's steering angle and vehicle path through existing electronic stability control sensors, and also uses chassis motion sensors to identify if the vehicle is crossing the road boundary. TomTom is a Dutch company that produces navigational and mapping products. Output from the mass data from individual TomTom products has been used to access travel speeds and used by local authorities. But now TomTom Telematics has launched a new smartphone app in the UK and Germany that gives drivers real-time feedback on their driving style, including live and retrospective feedback on their braking, cornering, acceleration, and idling. While the product itself doesn't include a GPS to protect the privacy of drivers, the app also includes an optional car finder tool that will navigate users directly to their parked vehicles. And won't that be handy, especially in busy shopping malls? And finally, when referring to the bull bars for the new Hilux utility range, Toyota Australia's president Dave Butner referred to them as good-looking bars and said they were fashion accessories for their vehicles. The Motoring Club of Queensland, the RACQ, has taken exception to this comment. They said while bull bars were necessary for some motorists in parts of rural Queensland, they warned against urban drivers fitting them to be simply trendy. They said they didn't want to see the unnecessary fitting of bull bars to city-based cars or for there to be any increased risk of serious injury to vulnerable road users, such as pedestrians or cyclists. That has been the news. Range Rover has done very well with its stylish, small SUV, the Evoque. Now its more affordable, though not cheap, little brother, Land Rover, has released the Land Rover Discovery Sport. It does not have the same square looks as the, quote, normal Discovery. Uh, The roofline is halfway between a full Range Rover and an Evoque, the new, very stylishly looking small SUV. Uh, they call it, uh, the, the, the Land Rover Discovery, call it a compact vehicle. It's really classed as a medium SUV. It mainly comes in diesel variants. Starts at about 53 not quite, uh, $1,000, and goes all the way up to $66,500. You can get a petrol one in there for about 59 Now, it's, uh, it's uh, an interesting car, and Paul Morell from practicalmotoring.com.au has also been driving it, so let's uh, compare notes, and he joins us on the line now. Paul, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, David. And uh, this is really going to see the end of the Freelander, I think, but it's still on sale at the moment. Yes, the Freelander is is hanging on by its fingernails. Um, Not much longer for the market, I don't think, and I don't think it's going to be hugely missed by by anyone, to be honest. Mm. It, it, It just never seemed to get that part of that 
cachet of being a, a, a smaller version of a Land Rover Discovery. It's true. It's uh, the Freelander in many ways was the, the the last hangover of the old Land Rover era. Um, mm. As they've as they've moved forward and they've improved their design and they've improved their customer satisfaction and they've improved their reliability, that one was sort of a little out of place in the range. Yeah, it's uh, it never it never looked that sort of competent that off-road that the Discovery does. And, 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 and Land Rover has kept with that. It still has, as this vehicle as well, it is competent off-road, even if you might never use it that way. It's very competent off-road. I mean, but so was the Freelander, to be honest. Um, we took it mm. to some strange, strange and unexpected places and it came very well. And yeah. Land Rover, a bit like Jeep, is... is has built its reputation on being able to go off-road. So to, to veer away from that, to take a, take a different path where they make a less than very competent off-road vehicle tends to belittle or, or diminish their brand. So the Land, the Land Rover Discovery Sport, which is a very confusing name because it's, it's not even a Discovery, it's based on the Evoque platform, um, has to be good off-road as well, even though, as you say, most people will never go near a, a dirt track. Yeah, no, the Freelander was good, there's no doubt about it. I just didn't think it looked all, all that sort of um, uh, competent as that. It was it was more an appearance than an actual uh, a reality in what they do. It was a very this, uh, boring design. I mean, it just looked like it had, it, it had been, mm. you know, someone drew it with a set square and a, and a large magic marker. I didn't really have any imagination about it at all. No, which is quite different to the Evoke, which very. has an almost provocative sort of look about it. I always said that Evoke was the sort of car to be seen in an upmarket suburb in. It said that you are going with the SUV trend, but you're certainly not doing it in the normal way. It's, it, it was very much, well, it's still very much bought for style. My niece bought one, and you, know, you could almost see the development. First of all, they wanted a Lexus because they had the right badge and the right, the right suburban image. Uh, and then when the Evoke came out, it was, oh, no, now we want an Evoke. I haven't seen what what will come next, but it's yeah, it's very much a matter of looking looking the part on on the street and outside the school. Now the actual roof line, as I said, I think looks sort of halfway between a full Range Rover and an Evoque in in, in the Land Rover Discovery Sport. It, it slopes down a little bit, but it's certainly not the boxy shape of the Discovery. No, it's not, and it's it's not the boxy shape of the Discovery, which is incredible. It's more design. It's more function over design. Um, in this case, this is a bit of a bit of a sort of midway house because the Evoque is almost impractical in its internal design. Uh, it's mm. because of its roof line and because of its window line. Um, the Evoque tends to be compromised. The the new Discovery Sport sits in the middle it's not as compromised as the evoke yet it has a lot of a style and it's not as practical as the discovery because it's not as big and not as square hmm. it's still a, a very good inside uh, i think you can get a third row of seats which suggests uh, that it's not small inside although if you do take up that option you are talking about a fairly cramped area um, uh, uh, for, mainly for kids I think along the way uh, but uh, inside you know it, it, it's pretty good uh, it uses the space um, which it takes up with a third row of seats uh, it's not compromised by the suspension for example of you know, cutting in too much so it, it's a clever car in that regard it is I mean the third row of seats is not quite a must-have accessory but you know it's a nice little it's a nice little 
bonus to get. Um, unfortunately, mm. you've got to pay extra for it, but you know, fact of life, I think, these days. And, of course, it gives you the benefit. If you don't want for third row of seats, you don't have to pay extra for it. Paul, this has uh, been wonderful. It's good to mull over uh, some cars on the market, and it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Paul Morell from uh, practicalmotoring.com.au. We were talking about the Land Rover Discovery Sport that's uh, out on the market and uh, uh, a competent car with some very nice features. And you can hear a longer interview by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. Ford Falcon is the last of the line. Due to go out of production in 2016, it is struggling in the sales. The new model released late last year is different in looks to some degree. Some models have gone, but the Hero XR8 is back. 36.5 just about, uh, plus on-roads to start with, going to a maximum of about 53,500. Uh, does it live up to its legacy? Brent Davidson and I have been driving them a little while ago, but uh, we thought we were to reflect on them now just to see what uh, we might be missing out in the future. Uh, Brent, a big earthy car, I think. It feels sometimes not so bulky, but um, a bit like a lounge chair. Yeah, look, to me, David, it, it, it feels like, felt like it came almost from another age. Um, it doesn't feel... Uh, what's the word? It doesn't feel as energetic as the modern uh, contemporary cars. Um, like a Camry, for example. I don't know whoever thought I'd be saying that. But it feels like it's, I don't know, 15, 20 years older than it really is. And that's not a bad thing. As you say, it feels big. It's a lounge room. Uh, yes, very comfortable, quiet, does everything you want. Got lots of room. You'd almost have a dance in the back seat. Um, yeah, it, it just has that sort of oldie-worldie charm to it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think they've gone... They, they used to feel a bit like a front row forward, you know, big and bulky and whose knees you had, you know, felt were suspect, if you know what I mean. Yeah. No, I think it's now probably still a forward in the pack, but a little bit more of the modern, fitter one as well. It's not as sloppy or as um, you know, wallowy as they were in the past. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it, is as, it is as sharp as a pin. And, and, and I uh, discovered that when I drove that XR8 that you mentioned earlier, um, mm. both on the road and then on a, uh, on a skid pan, uh, Ford laid out a, uh, an obstacle course, basically, you know, around the witch's hats. Um, it's a very sharp car. You can drive it uh, quite energetically, and, and it will behave itself. And that's always a nice thing. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's right. It, it's become a more refined car, particularly even though it's got the big, you know, sort of Detroit iron up the front sort of feel about it with the V8. The V8 can sometimes uh, feel a little heavy under the front, and that's sometimes where a lot of people like Falcons with the uh, turbocharged 6. Yeah, well, uh, let, let's, yeah. let's not kid ourselves. The, the XR8 is a car that's being made to meet demand for a lot of buyers who will buy this car and essentially mothball it. 
um, as uh, probably their kids' inheritance, uh, something like that, uh, because it will be the last of the Ford Falcons, last of the Aussie-made Fords um, with the V8 and all that goes with that. You're right, the six-cylinder engine, both in naturally aspirated and turbocharged versions. Oh, the turbocharged version, do I love that or not? But anyway... I'm digressing. The the six-cylinder engine is the one that, that really is nice. The four-litre naturally aspirated car has is just sublime. It is probably one of the best six-cylinder engines I've driven anywhere in the world. Uh, the turbocharged four-litre, um, it makes the V8 look a little bit silly at times. Yes, it, it it's a better balance, I think. Uh, the V8, you know, has got that uh, front row forward feel about it. I, I I exaggerate to make a point. Yeah, yeah. But but look, yeah, the, the V8 is a heavier engine. It puts more weight over the front end of the car. Therefore, the front suspension's been beefed up to deal with it, and and therefore you get that kind of heavy feeling back through the steering, back into the road feel, the whole thing. Yeah, give give me the six cylinder engine any time. Of course, the interesting thing is that you can also, almost heresy, get it with a four-cylinder, albeit a two, a turbocharged one as well. Yeah, but it's but an amazing four-cylinder, David, isn't it? Uh, it, it you know, it, it's against all the sort of image of the car, yet it is a, a, a viable alternative, particularly if you want to, you know, be conscious about fuel consumption. Now, here's the funny thing. Um, Australians look at a two-litre Falcon and kind of laugh as they turn up their noses. Um, I last week drove a 1.8-litre um, big Audi, an A6 Audi, with a turbo mm. 1.8, and it was a sensational car. Um, mm. and, and so really, uh, the, the two-litre turbocharged Falcon makes a lot of sense, but we, if it was in Europe, it would be selling like hotcakes, but in Australia, mm. they might sell 20. It's lovely to reflect on you about things to do with motoring. I appreciate your comment. David, it's always my pleasure. And that's Brent Davidson from the Newcastle Herald and the Illawarra Mercury. We were talking about the, the uh, fast-to-disappear, soon-to-disappear Falcon. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And the final part of our program is to chat about some unusual stories to do in the world of motor. And to help me on the line, I have Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Uh, Brian, you have a story to start us. Certainly, David. Um, there's a new language going around. It's the language of uh, youth, and it's called emojis. Emojis are little sort of icons that uh, uh, represent words or ideas, and, and people are beginning to communicate, even our own foreign minister, um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Julie Bishop uh, is communicating using these little symbols. So you string them together and um, uh, and make a sort of a message that can be sent by text message and, and read by teenagers. It's a bit uh, bamboozling for the older folk. Well, uh, one of the oldest car companies in the world has um, started using emojis to promote its cars. This is Chevrolet, 
uh, and it's a message um, for the uh, launch of the upcoming cruise uh, under the sort of um, heading words alone can't describe um, and uh, it's it sends some sort of little images of um, uh, a, a, a car a shirt and tie and a moustached man with a speech bubble followed by a light bulb another car a triangle and the earth now um, their first attempt at emoji language uh, hasn't gone down too well with a lot of commentators uh, Chevrolet being uh, accused of trying way too hard to be relevant with young people um, and interestingly there was a, a lot of sort of debate even among um, you know websites that deal in emojis and understand them uh, trying to interpret what it meant wired website uh, used to be a magazine, uh, thought the line said, this car is for dads who have mustaches and say things like, I have an idea, I should get a new car to save the planet. Uh, others thought um, uh, if a tiny blue car could wear a shirt and tie and grow a mustache like you had in college, it would say, give me a new headlight bulb and light up my world. Um, what it really meant was um, we had the idea that the new cruise could change the world. Now, I think they could have had a lot uh, less trouble if they'd just written that, uh, not necessarily done it all in pictures. Are you a fan of emojis? Uh, do we think we might start seeing road signs or information in emojis on our roads? I, I, I got caught up with them with a smiley face. I thought that was meant to mean that is good, you know, hmm. and, and so on. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I've struggled even just to come to grips with lol, laugh out loud. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This 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 is, this <laughs> yeah. is like this is I'm taking the whole, a whole whole <laughs> emoticon thing and and taking it to a whole new level of of silliness. I, I just thought mm. maybe they mm. they put a regular press release through a translator by accident. They <laughs> <laughs> they put a regular press release to through a child's uh, Lego toys. Uh, it's got all, all the things. It doesn't surprise me that the foreign minister does it because you know most foreign minister meetings people come out and tell you what they thought the meeting was about and usually it's quite different depending on who you ask. I guess it would help you get past language uh, barriers, perhaps? Well, possibly. Although it has all the accuracy and a cl clarity of definition of a Nostradamus uh, <laughs> canticle sort of thing, doesn't it? Uh, that, you know, that a guy says some vague terms which can be interpreted almost any way you oh, wish. Yes, it's quite mm. subjective, isn't it? Mm. That's a lot like a regular press release, really, for most people. <laughs> Fewer lies in it, perhaps. Fewer lies and exaggerations. Yeah, well, uh, th there's the ultimate line, of course, I was taken out of context. And so, <laughs> yes. no matter what you interpret, if it's not good, well, I was taken out of context. Uh, I'm yes. not a commentator, David. Yeah, it's the Simpsons. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Uh, the the Simpsons. They had that, didn't they? One time, and Bart and and uh, the headmaster. Who's the headmaster? He was uh, back in the Egyptian time, dictating a a bit of uh, hieroglyphics to someone. You know, saying, you know, uh, do that thing where the, the hand is pointing forward <laughs> at the front and and pointing Al, back. Al. No, no, yes. make it two of them. I want to make a point. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it amazes me actually that uh, the uh, blind people and well, not blind people, deaf people, uh, give that chance of sign language can be so accurate that some people, because it does rely on symbolism and things that 
you know, I'm amazed, and I think it's fantastic that uh, they managed to be able to communicate that way. Because I would have thought it was totally open to suggestion as to what a you know the wave of the hand or that might mean. Mm. Mm. But, uh, yes, uh, quite subjective. Mm. It's kind of like those waves you give when you're driving the car, isn't it? It can be misinterpreted. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, the, the one finger in the air meant I, I just <laughs> wanted to say, um, you know, you're the one for me. <laughs> I'm just supporting ISIS. <laughs> 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 it's one of those cultural things, isn't it? I, I think you're right, um, Brian. This yeah. is this is a try-hard ad campaign for a try-hard car. I mean, it's it's it. this is this is for the cruise, and it's not spelt the way you spell cruise. It's spelt C R U Z E with a Z. Yeah, of course, that's, that's so true. much cooler than spelling it correctly, or at least it would would have been cool a few decades ago. Yeah, I think the problem the Holden Cruise is the car that the you sort of buy for your children so the kids aren't buying it it's their first car being bought for for them by their parents <laughs> who has a mustache yes but it's yes. Uh, and an idea uh, but it's got a dvd player it's got a dvd player yes <laughs> very good brian <laughs> of course these symbols you were saying amongst drivers uh, that that a lot of combi drivers would often wave at other combi drivers uh, but if you had an do you remember the nsu ro80 Yes. It was a, a Wankel engine car. Yeah, if you drove car. past another one and they held up three fingers, that indicated the third engine that they were on because <laughs> they constantly blew engines. And, <laughs> so it became. Do you remember a, Hey Charger, David? The which one? Hey Charger. <laughs> hey Charger. Do you remember that? Yes. The, the V sign, you know, waved at all of these Valiant drivers, Charger drivers. And as a schoolboy, we loved doing it. I. Mm. I always thought by the look on their faces that none of the charger drivers were very keen on it. <laughs> it was a, a familiarity breeds contempt, I think. And, uh, yeah, and, and that that would have to go down as one of the great ads in you know c- campaigns, Indeed. marketing campaigns, along with the modern ones of Jeep. I think so. They well, look, David. Yes, the Jeep ones are memorable for all the wrong reasons i think um the one that i like the least is um in which i, I think thought immediately about hey charger is the it's a mitzi oh, yeah. campaign now nobody is going to call those cars mitzis it's not going yeah. to work mitsubishi stop gentlemen lovely to talk to you thank you very much for your time you're welcome and that's errol smith and brian smith where we're talking some unusual stories in the world of motoring and transport And you can hear a longer version of that if you go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Paul Morell, Brian Smith, Brent Davidson and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated to stations across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>